Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Cream, I Feel Free, because I've got lyricist for Cream, a much more poet, singer, record producer, screenwriter, the legendary Pete Brown here today. Uh, Welcome to the Strange Brew, Pete. Thank you. Such a pleasure to do a career-spanning podcast with you. But it's also great to start with I Feel Free because yes. that's a song that over time has become a real anthem and embodied the spirit of the 60s. Is that something that resonates with you and is that something that you were trying to capture at the time with the lyrics? Well, I mean, I suppose it's mildly psychedelic uh, or, or maybe mildly pre-psychedelic. Um, but um, it was the first hit, proper hit that we had. 
you know, a genuine um, organic hit rather than the than wrapping paper, which was bought into the charts. I ignominiously say, uh, wasn't my fault. But um, it's also the only kind of song which I would think I would categorise as as a, as a almost like a pop song because we didn't do anything remotely like that after it even though we had other hits but but even i mean white room certainly wasn't the pop song you know and sunshine was a very bluesy type of thing but um i mean the the good thing about i feel free really is is that you've got a very interesting combination of elements which is a very very hard driving rhythm section and then on top of that, you've got this very, very legato uh, uh, vocal, you know, mm. and that's a really great contrast. I mean, the only person previously to that that had done something like that was was probably Brian Wilson. He did he did a couple of things like that, you know, mm. uh, with very hard driving rhythm. But um, it was very special, really. It's, 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 very special song. Very happy about it. And of course, it's now in a, a bank commercial <laughs> at the moment. Do you know about that? Oh, no. Uh, was it a UK one? Yeah, the Starling Bank. Oh. Rather a kind of tame name for a, a rapacious bank. But um, they've bought it for a year, which is good news for the finances. <laughs> How did the songwriting um, work with uh, Jack Bruce? Was it that he worked the the melody around your lyrics, or did you have a role, or was it did it vary? Yes, it varied quite a lot. Although because of the nature of the of the Cream situation, which was the fact that they were on the road nearly all the time, because they were a cash cow for the management, then we didn't get very much time to work on stuff, um, and so. Um, some of it might have turned out quite different if we'd have had more time. But anyway, no, we we did it. I Feel Free was certainly the music for that was written first. And then, then I just kind of found the right words uh, for that particular one. But we did it always round later on, you know. Before the cream years, you you were quite a, a notable poet, and uh, was it was it Ginger and Jack actually saw you at one of those gigs where you were doing poetry? Well, um, not exactly. I mean, right. I was a huge jazz fan, and I was always down the jazz clubs listening to what was going on, and um, was particularly I, I liked some of the old older guys that were that were from the first generation of modern jazz and bebop and stuff like that. But also mixed in, there were this next generation, which was Jack and Ginger and people like that. And uh, they were very, very exciting musicians to listen to anyway. And I would, I was very friendly. When we started doing the poetry thing, then mm. Dick Hextall Smith, the great saxophone player, used to come and play with us on the jazz and poetry things. And that was the connection, really. That's how I met Jack and Ginger through Dick. We got on very well, me and me and Dick. You know, we were very good friends. Oh. We even lived in the same place together for a while. And uh, I, I do miss him very badly. Actually, he was one of my best friends. Um, and of course, later on, I worked with him with Coliseum. In fact, I'm still working with Coliseum. Hmm. But that's another story. But but um, anyway, Jack and. Ginger. Ginger had heard me doing stuff. In fact, he actually played on one of the jazz and poetry concerts. And Jack 
there was a guy called John Mumford, a very, very fine musician, trombonist, who was a friend of mine. And he was sharing a flat with Jack. And that's how I really met Jack. Uh, went round and was sociable. And, and, um, and then when Cream formed, after, after being in the Graham Bond organization, of course, which was, for my, to my mind, the greatest British band, that was Dick, mm. Jack, Ginger, and Graham with occasional bursts of John McLaughlin. Then, uh, after being in that, that's when Cream began to sort of shape up. And they knew that I could write. So they, Ginger phoned me up and said, you know, they were round the corner in the studio uh, from where I lived. And they said, Ian, uh, do you want to come round and write some words for, you know, for this? And so I popped round to the studio and lo and behold, there was wrapping paper. So uh, that that was how it started. And then it became obvious that Jack and I had a tremendous chemistry, that we had the same sense of humor, we had the same socialist outlooks, and we liked a lot of the same music, you know, a lot of the, you know, we liked Charlie Mingus and we liked Duke Ellington and we liked Coltrane and everybody, you know, like, and we would listen to stuff together quite a lot, you know. Um, so, uh, um, and it, there was the, that just kind of chemistry, which I've always had with people from Scotland, you know, I'm, I'm in particular, or Celtic people generally. I'm actually married to one. I'm married to a Scot, you know. She's uh, she's very Scottish in some ways. So there was this chemistry, and that's that's what sustained us, really. That was what was really happening. Um, and also, we could work very fast. I could work fast, because we had to. And Jack could work very fast anyway, because he's very, very versatile, you know. So we managed to get quite a lot done in very short spaces of time. Wrapping paper Down. 
The great thing about Cream at the time is that musically they were constantly evolving and the way that you were able to add lyrics worked remarkably well with the changing sound of the band. So by the time you get to Disraeli Gears and Sunshine of Your Love, the sound had progressed even even more. And sure, then... well that's because that's they had a great producer by that time. That was another thing, of course. But on the other hand, um, yeah, I mean, we we were well into it by then as a a partnership really so um we could do things relatively at the drop of a hat and that song in particular it's just a such a great combination of the riff as well as that opening line it's getting near dawn yeah. it's so evocative well that was the truth you see i mean we were working all night and then jack picked up his double bass which he was still playing at that time a bit and he said well what about this then and played the riff and it was like five o'clock in the morning. It was in the summer. And I looked out and it was getting near dawn. So I wrote it down. <laughs> so, yes. Funnily enough, years and years later, when I started singing the song myself, mm. then I realized what it was about. I, I, I wasn't quite sure what it was about. But then actually what it's really about is like a kind of musician or somebody doing a gig or doing work of some kind. And then... um being on the way back home to, you know, and, and hoping that his wife or girlfriend would be waiting for him and so something nice would happen after a lot of hard work. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it was really about.
Some of the songs that we've been talking about recently seem to come very quickly and on the spur of the moment. But is it true that, that White Room was actually a much longer yes. poem that, that you'd been working yes. on? Yes, it was an eight-page poem. And luckily, one of my bits of education was that I went to a journalism college for a while, which I didn't graduate from. But um, at the journalism college, I learned the art of praise. Um, which was how to, you know, cut things down and make them um, find the essential stuff in there and, and get rid of the, the unnecessary ornaments. And um, because there was very little time, as I said, for, for working with cream, mm. then all the ideas were considered. And Jack had already written most of the music for White Room. And we tried a few ideas, a few lyrical ideas that didn't work. And then I suddenly thought of this poem, which was called White Room anyway. And I thought, well, if I pray this down to a page, then maybe that could work. And, and that's what did work. One of the great things about the lyrics of that track is just the references in it. And you can listen back and get various meanings from it. Yeah. Black Roof Country's in there and... When you're reading it, you can read so much meaning into different parts of it. I think the thing that's made it last is the fact that there is a certain mystery about it. Mm. It's very cinematic in a way. It jumps around from, from position to position. You know, I've got different kind of persons telling it and different and, and a lot of kind of images in the middle of, of of emotions and stuff like that and um and i think that's what makes it interesting it's not straightforward at all it's in its way it's quite i guess you would call it sophisticated but um but people seem to understand it on a basic level which is great of course for me and and um and i'm very proud of it i'm i love the thing you know i still sing that now as well you know sometimes yeah. It was a time when I was going through a watershed period of changing slowly into what I became. And so it's all about that, really, in, in some ways. But it's about everything. I mean, you know, and, and being in London at that time and, and the need to travel and, and, and the need to, you know. I mean, it was written in the actual, well, the original poem anyway was written in the White Room itself there was a a room that i had in someone's flat that that was one of the first places that i rented ever and um so i actually wrote it in there that's why why it's in there you know because it's real
Sleep. 
around the time that Cream were dissolving and Jack was, I assume, kind of starting to, to formulate plans for his first solo album, which um, became Songs for a Tailor. Right. Was it just a, a natural process to continue working together? Yes, I think it was, you know. I think it, it was, there was a, as I say, there was that chemistry and we'd already got quite a lot of success. We were already kind of known as a, a songwriting duo and, and, um, and so I guess the obvious thing was to carry on, which we did for 48 years. <laughs> <laughs> Must be one of the longest ever songwriting teams i think yeah and a theme for an imaginary western right. i've heard that that was linked to graham bond is that true well yes i mean because the thing about the graham bond organization was that they were like a kind of mixture of cowboys and pioneers or outlaws and pioneers and so when i first heard the music for that for that for that song then uh, which came first uh, then I actually thought, well, it's uh, you know I'm a big fan of westerns. I lo- I've got a big collection of western DVDs, and um, and I thought, well, it sounds like it was reminiscent of some of the great western scores mm. uh, in many ways. You know, it was it, it reminded me of Dmitry Tionkin and Jerome Moros and people like loads, the number of people that were specialised in in western film scores. Uh, particularly Tiomkin, who I loved anyway. I loved his work. And and um, so it seemed obvious that it was going to be about some kind of Western-type situation, you know. And then and then it came to me that it was uh, it was about Graham and Dick and Jack and Ginger, you know, mm-hmm. who were, as I say, they were pioneers in what they were doing. And also, in many ways, they were outlaws, Partly because, um, yeah. although I think that that was the greatest ever British band, and then uh, it was to musicians what the Beatles were to the public in many ways. But although I think it was the best British band, then they were not beautiful. None of them were beautiful, you know. I mean, they were sexy, but they weren't beautiful, you know. And they weren't like pop things, you know, or anything like that. So they were more like... More like outlaws, you know, mm. in, in many ways. Oh, my. 
talked at the start about how you were performing originally as a poet but that right that developed so when we did you start thinking about branching out yourself as a performer well i mean as i say i was i was making a very thin living doing poetry readings of my own work yeah. it got better after we did the albert hall thing in 1965 with ginsburg and ferlinghetti and all these guys and got we got better known through that and then the next year was the year that I started writing for Cream, and and through that, through actually being having a toe in the music business, as it were, I always wanted to be a musician anyway. I mean, right. although I never thought I would be a singer, I was having trumpet lessons and and playing percussion and stuff like that. And and when we got the battered ornaments together in 1968, then then. Um, I thought I'd be allowed to play trumpet, and, and but actually I was a rotten trumpet player anyhow. So I mean, uh, and they said the guys in the band said to me, "Well, you know, none of us can sing, so you wrote the bloody songs, you fucking sing them," you know. <laughs> and so that's what I did, very badly to start with for a long time. You know, I was the world's one of the, not a good singer for a long time, you know. But uh, then other then things happened, and, and, and I did six years of, of singing lessons later on, you know. Mm. We have Dark Lady from... Oh, yeah. <laughs> from a meal that you can shake hands with in the dark and yes. that album. Um, what are your memories of uh, writing and recording that song in particular? Well, it was very influenced by Graham, you know. Right. You can hear it. It's, it, it's not as good as what Graham was doing at the time, but it, was, it certainly was influenced by Graham. It was about this this particular woman who who actually was a sort of Carmen figure amongst the musicians, 
Every, she was very, very, very sexy, and, and everyone fell in love with her. And people used to fight over her. I, I nearly got into it. I, I'm a pacifist, you know, mm. and I, I nearly got into a fight over her. <laughs> it was terrible, really. And, uh, yeah, so so it was really about her, you know. She was she was very. She get you into terrible trouble. <laughs> but your time with the battered ornaments didn't last. No, only a year. I mean, just over a year. They they notoriously fired me just before we were going to play with the stones in the park. So and and they did it without me, which was a, actually a mistake. But no, they decided that I wasn't a good enough singer, which was true. I mean, at the time, I, I quite honestly, I would have fired myself if I'd have had the courage. But anyhow, yeah, that was that was it was all right because the next thing I did was I formed Piblocto and 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 that was mm, more of a musical sort of thing that 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 lasted for quite a long time and 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 I was able to actually get my chops going and and I was in very 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 good company with that band you know so they kind of nurtured me a bit and I I did improve a bit you know to some extent anyway. So that was that was good. Waiting for his call I'll be you the 
Blocktoe was a, you know, I mean, it was a hell of a band. Jim Mullen and all those guys in it, they were fantastic. You know, I listen to that every now and then now, and, and I think, Christ, what a band, you know. Yeah, when you hear Thousands on a Raft, I think it's got a bit more of a classic feel and, and doesn't Oh, yes. I, I love that. So I still sing it, you know, I still do. Because it's another one of those songs where, where I... I wrote it, you know, and I thought, okay, well, I like the sound of this. This is all right, you know. And I didn't, I really didn't know what it was about. Again, I wasn't sure. And then over the years, I began to realize that I predicted a whole lot of things that were going to happen in my life later on, you know. So (laughs) that was what it was partly about, you know. Yeah, it was really, I I love that song, you know, and I, I played it. Before the COVID thing, I played it. I went, I, the last gig abroad that I did was in Vienna and uh, it, was a, it was a full house. It was really well attended. And, and, uh, and I sang that and, and this guy came up to me at the end and said, um, oh, you know, I, I cried. He said he cried, you know, because he thought it was sounded so, you know, oh, obviously I'm singing a hell of a lot better now than I used mm. to. So it's got more emotional impact and everything, but, um, but yeah, it's a song, it's a very important song to me, Perry.
You formed a partnership with Graham Bond. Yeah, right. That was um, uh, the second and third versions of Pipe Lockto were with Phil Ryan on keyboards, who became one of my closest friends, and and um, and we carried on working until he died, of course, uh, a few years back. But um, uh, yeah, then I, I jumped at the opportunity to get a band together with Graham in '72. And well, actually, towards the end of '71, really, and uh, um, we tried hard. We made a record. We did lots of gigs. Graham was damaged by his 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 time with with heroin, mm. and so it, it was very unpredictable, uh, to say the least. But we did some great gigs. We toured a lot in in Europe. And did some festivals, all sorts of things, and they, yeah, it was something. I, I, that was the best trumpet playing I did as well. I was playing a bit of trumpet with that, and that was probably the best. Graham was a man who inspired you, and and unlike a lot of great musicians, he also encouraged you. You know, if you got up on the stage with Graham, you would always do something that you didn't think you could do. You know, because he was, he had that effect on you. And that was fantastic for me. It was, it was great. I mean, towards the end of it, the drug thing got too much again and, 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 uh, the performances started to suffer. And, and in the end, I bailed, you know. But, um, Graham, you know, <laughs> was somebody that I loved as a musician and, to some extent, as a friend, you know, although it was, as I say, you never knew quite where you were with him. But, um, uh, you know, he was an amazing guy in many, many ways. And when you listen to that album, Two Heads Are Better Than One and, and, and tracks like Lost Tribe, um, oh, yeah. were you more musically confident by then and were you playing a greater role in, in, in the musical side of things? Yes, a little bit. And, and oh, yes, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, Graham, as I say, was really, really encouraging and inspiring, and so and so I took I did take a slightly bigger part in that, and and in fact, Lost Tribe was the thing in Britain was was starting. You know, the the, the scene was starting to change and 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 uh, and die, and so we found ourselves on the road in Europe a hell of a lot, as I said, where we were appreciated a lot more. And that's where the idea of the, the Lost Tribe thing came from, you know. 
As we were discussing earlier on, the, the, the ever-present element of your career was that incredible partnership with Jack that you had. Yes. Despite the vagaries of the music industry and the, the shifts in sounds and whatever, that seemed to be an ever-present thing. So even by 1980, you were there with Jack and We Have Bird Alone, which is a great oh, yeah, favourite. No, yes, I, I mean, we went through lots and lots of different changes, really. I mean, Jack was a very very open-minded man musically 
he listened to a whole lot of different things and was inspired by things as diverse as the obvious things like Charlie Mingus and Joe and and then soul things like Joe Tex and and then he also was very capable of playing classical stuff as well and he loved Olivier Messiaen you know who was very important to him and so it was always changing which was great for me because we never got into a, a rut or anything you know um, there was always a, a new challenge and of course, we did have much more time to work on stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, and it just lasted and lasted. I mean, yeah, we had some fights. Uh, we didn't speak to each other for a while every now and then, you know, because we're both highly developed personalities and, and having the two of us in the same room sometimes didn't always work. And then Jack had problems as well later on with, you know, Mm. with nasty uh, substances and so um which I didn't I I got completely straight in 1967 I I stopped drinking and taking silly drugs and stuff like that completely and utterly I've never touched anything since and so it was kind of kind of a bit difficult but I got used to it yeah. you know and mainly I could function under that particular strain mostly Every now and then I walked away from it, or he walked away from me, you know, because whatever. But mostly we stayed there, you know. And then we hadn't talked for a while when we did the last record together. But that's, an, that's towards the end of it anyway. But Bird alone is, is, you know, we both loved Charlie Parker. So that was Bird, you know. Bird was Charlie Parker. But at the same time, it's the title of a very, very good book about Ireland by a, a very famous writer called Sean O'Fillon, which has an atmosphere to it as well, with very amazing atmosphere in that book. And so I sort of mentally combined Charlie Parker with this Irish writer in my mind, and, and that's how that one turned out. Outside of your songwriting partnership with Jack in 80s and 90s, what were you doing as well? Because I know that in that period you outside the music industry or, or performing, you did a, a, a range of things? Yes. Well, I mean, when the punk thing came along, I was completely horrified by it and thought that it was something that was destroying the skill base of British music, music you know. And um, and uh, you couldn't get a record deal at the time because they just wanted people that couldn't play and that looked right. And so I had a great band at the time called Back to the Front, full of absolutely amazing musicians like Ian Lynn and Jeff Siapardi and, and, and John McKenzie sometimes on bass or Dill Katz. And um, we were mm. doing well live, you know, because people hated punk live. A lot of people couldn't stand it. And we played in places where the punk acts had played a couple of days before and they told us how much they hated it, you know. Because it was, unfortunately, the punk thing was something that the record business invented and rammed down everybody's throat. And I won't say any more about it because I get, I start ranting. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, and so I thought, okay, well, after the failure of Back to the Front, which was partly me because I once again thought, that being such great musicians i wasn't i wasn't doing my job enough and so i felt well uh i'm going to stop uh and i'm going to try and learn to do this properly even if i never do another gig again 
So that's when I started having singing lessons uh, in about towards the end of 1977. Um, and and uh, but meanwhile, I wasn't doing any gigs at all. I just I just gave up and um, and started trying to write film scripts at a time when there was <laughs> when there was no British film industry at all. And uh, Margaret Thatcher actually thought that the British film industry was 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 full of um, communists, which was completely and utterly fucking untrue, and tried to destroy it as a result. And so at that time, we were making about 30 films a year, most of which were for television, yeah. you know. And, um, and so they called them plays, but actually they were proper films. And people like Joe McKenzie directing them and stuff like that. But some of them were really good. We got to, Phil and I did the music for one of them uh, called Red Shift, which was an Alan Garner book. It was really good, you know. Mm. Anyway, uh, so I was writing, you know, and, and, and I actually got a very good agent, literary agent, and he got me quite a lot of work, you know, but a lot of the things that I wrote never got made. I think they were too idiosyncratic really so uh, but I still do that I, I'm still trying to get you know I've got a very good partnership with a young director and I'm still trying to trying to get get my scripts made mm. um, and there is some possibility of that at the moment so that's good love in the mirrors down in the bar Songs promise everything From sad guitars The faces never change But you're not there I hear the notes you 